Hi, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast. This is the seventh episode in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present our weekly seminar. I hope your day is going well. I'm Lewis DeFrates, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College, and this afternoon I'm very happy uh, to be speaking to Robert or Bobby Lee. Bobby uh, recently became a university lecturer in American history here at the University of Cambridge and is also a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. He completed his PhD at the University of California in Berkeley. What year was that? 2017. 2017, right. So Robert works broadly on the colonisation of the United States during the 19th century with a focus on land tenure, state formation and US-Indian relations. Last year he had an article titled Accounting for Conquest, the Price of the Louisiana Purchase of Indian Country published in the Journal of American History, in which he recentered understandings of the cost of the Louisiana Purchase by focusing on a federal purchase of land from Native Americans from 1804 onwards, exploring the results of these treaties through the use of geospatial analysis and GIS. That article won, and I'm going to list all of them here. <laughs> uh, the Binkley Stevenson Award for Best Article in the Journal of American History, the Bolton Carter Award for Best Article in Any Phase of the uh, History of the North American Borderlands, the James Madison Prize for Excellence in an Article on the US Federal Government, and the Louis Peltzer Award for Best Essay in American History by a Graduate Student. In short, it caused quite a stir, and we're looking forward to seeing what he does next. Bobby, thanks very much for speaking to me today. Thanks so much for having me, Lewis. Great, so we're going to talk a little bit about the paper you shared with us, uh, a bit about your ongoing work, and some of your wider experiences as a historian. So the paper you've given us today is titled Indian Boundaries, Settler Populations and Demographic Origins of the Missouri Crisis. It's been pre-circulated, so I've had a chance to read it already, but could you tell listeners of the podcast a bit about it? Yeah, the article is a study of the backstory, the local backstory of the Missouri Crisis. So the Missouri Crisis um, starts in 1819 when a petition comes from Missouri for statehood uh, into Congress, and a congressman named James Talmadge Jr. from New York attached a, a, a gradual abolition rider to the statehood petition. Uh, and this causes a, a stir, a sort of huge debate um, that sort of grips the nation for a short period. Um, it's very intense in Congress where there hadn't been such um, outspoken and vitriolic uh, debates about slavery. Um, and the story that we normally tell about about this uh, crisis is that it ends with a compromise in 1820-1821 that makes Missouri a state, a slave state, uh, makes Maine a free state, and projects a line off the uh, over the continent at the 36 degree 30 minute um, latitude, and that line is going to divide slavery in future states sort of carved out of um, uh, the U.S. territory. And the stories that we tell about the Missouri crisis is that it's a, it's a highly contingent event, and it's contingent because of Talmadge, because he is a one-term congressman. He sort of adds this rider that sets off this, sets off this debate, and then he's, then he's out of Congress. So it's very much dependent on his, his moment um, in Congress. And the question that I ask is, how did the petition get there? How did the population? Uh, how did the how did the population rise to the point where a petition for statehood was uh, thought a possible, likely, um, even uh, even necessary? 
And the answer that I find is that there was this incredible boom in a very specific location in Missouri called Boone's Lick uh, between 1815 and 1818. And in order to explain that boom, um, that, that, that this boom, this land rush, you have to understand the way in which Indian title was extinguished to the land underneath this area of Boone's Lick. Um, so the backstory of that is the the way that this land is brought into the public domain is through a proclamation that William Clark issues in 1815. Um, that's really kind of a, a shady type of uh, decree. The normal process is through uh, through the treaty making process, but because it's the um, because it's post War of 1812, he's hamstrung and he can't uh, he can't. Um, negotiate a land session treaty in the immediate post-war period. Um, so he issues this decree um, and it erases, it effectively erases Sack and Fox claims to this land north of the Missouri which they had acquired um, recently uh, prior to the U.S. Or, um, the arrival of American officials after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Um, in the 1790s, they had basically um, invaded and um, ejected the Missouri and Little Osage who were living on this sort of stretch of the river. And the emptying out of this region uh, in the late 18th century created an open space that sort of squatters then came into and then through the legal mechanisms of, um, of extinguishing Indian title created the preconditions for this massive land boom that then is able to support a petition going to Congress in 1818, 1819. Um, so that's the story that it tells, the sort of the, the local... Uh, story of Indian land, of settler populations, um, as a trigger for the Missouri crisis. Yeah. And that's a side um, of the story that is just not a part of the existing literature. Mm. And in, in the paper you talk about Boone's Lick, it's like this, it's kind of the focal point for all of this mm -hmm. massive movement. Could you talk maybe about why that place in particular within the region, why that attracts yeah, squatters and then yeah, this is sort of the, the million dollar question. There's a, a local um, who's commenting on this at the time and he describes it as there are these places that become what he calls pole stars of attraction um, that bring in immigrants and he couldn't really explain where or when they would pop up, but they did from time to time. Um, but what enabled Boone's Lick to become one of these pole stars of attraction was a couple of uh, natural features, the soil, it was very good for tobacco cultivation, so potential immigrants, especially from Tennessee and Kentucky, saw it um, as a type, almost a possible sort of new Virginia in terms of the possibility for uh, tobacco cultivation. Uh, different from a lot of the sort of, once you get further north away from the river, um, the plains are going to start, the prairie plains are going to start, and sort of the area around Boone's Lick is more hilly. Um, there are trees. <laughs> which are very attractive to potential migrants. Um, but there was also um, an incredible amount of game there that you know people noticed coming in. What they didn't uh, fully grasp at the time and what especially anthropologists have, have helped us understand is that there were these places that were filled with game uh, across the continent 
typically because they were intertribal war zones that were dangerous uh, for people to go. So it created conditions for uh, deer and other animals to, to thrive, right? Um, so it did have natural potential, but so did a lot of other places. Um, and what ties together a lot of the uh, the places that became magnets for new populations in the post-war of 1812 period was the was markets, the possibility for land purchases or the the idea, the sense that they would be coming sort of online and available in the near future, so the chance to sort of get in on the ground floor of it. Um, so Boone's Lake was highly attractive for both natural reasons and the sort of legal reasons that were con- that were uh, determined through the um, the adjustment in the Indian Treaty Line, and it's not necessarily the case um, that all of these migrants that went to Boone's Lake would have wound up elsewhere in Missouri mm-hmm. uh, if they hadn't gone there. They could have gone. Uh, to Alabama where there was land being opened up if they were especially if they were interested in something like cotton culture uh, there were a lot of people going to Ohio to upstate New York western New York at the time and what all of these uh, places in Illinois as well and what all of these places have in common was the the opening of markets in former Indian lands mm-hmm. and that's just um, leading off of that you're talking about people moving to all these different areas of the country and the shared properties they have one of the things I'm interested in the paper is how you manage to talk about these broader trends and the kind of like land patterns and stuff, but it's framed around, at least to some extent, framed around this speech given by the Sac Chief Keotuk in 1824. Yeah, could you talk maybe about how you, about your use of these little moments and speeches and political, political conquest, like conflicts in conjunction with these broader structural economic property changes? Yeah, I mean... Keokuk's speech, he gave this in 1824 in Washington after sort of several years of lobbying, trying to, trying to get to Washington uh, to make the case for some sort of restitution for these lost lands that had been sort of taken by this proclamation. Um, and then in the ensuing land rush, the sort of possibilities for evicting the incoming squatters uh, turned landowners by 1818. Were, were impossible. So in the sort of world of the Sock and Fox, there were um, two emerging con- contingencies uh, in the post-war of 1812 period. There was the sort of the Keokuk branch that was more interested in finding uh, ways of accommodation, uh, and there were the Black Hawk sort of uh, uh, contingent that was more interested in resisting um, the U.S. invasion of their homelands. Um, and I found this speech in microfilm. Um, it's uh, it's widely available. Um, it's never been reproduced or uh, or um, or published before uh, that I know of. It's a very short speech and the thing about it was well one it's telling this sort of very fascinating story about having conquered lands in the manner that uh, that the United States does, you know, yeah. claiming by right of conquest. These are the words that, that Keokuk uses, um, and he is asking by what right did you uh, obtain these lands and we had we had acquired them by conquest. Uh, and he's telling a story about how, you know, his 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 father's had been his father and uh, his father's father had been evicted from other areas where they had been living and then they had conquered these lands. Um, and I couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find anything yeah. that explained it uh, in 
books about 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 Missouri or about the uh, or yeah about about territorial Missouri or books about the Sock and Fox. Um, this sort of this war that they had launched is not conceptualized as an event. There are sort of fragments of it that you can pull out of the record, but it's not, it doesn't have a name. Yeah. It's not a conflict with a name, but it's very evidently an important conflict in the, in the region. Um, so there was a speech, and I tried to frame the, the article around um, bringing out the story behind this speech. So in order to do that, I was sort of tacking between the nitty-gritty particulars of uh, the events that eventually, you know, result in Keokuk coming to Washington, uh, but trying to frame them in terms of the sort of broader trends um, that they were representing. I mean, I see this as an example of a type of, um, a type of example of indigenous political um, or geopolitical maneuvering that hasn't been more widely appreciated as, as in the literature as a, as a sort of coherent event. So we see this happening in other places, like in the 17th century with the Susquehannock War and its relationship to, um, to Bacon's Rebellion. We see this in the, in the 18th century with, with the Iroquois. We see it in the Southwest in the 18th and the 19th century um, with, the, with the Comanche, sort of uh, independent Indians pursuing their own political ends um, and the, the results of which might have intended or unintended consequences in, in the larger sort of story of North American colonization that's going on, going on around them. Yeah. So, and when we talk about these broader trends, uh, one of the ways you illustrate it through your paper is through the use of GIS and mapping, and that's it's not so prominent in this paper as the article that you submitted last year. But could you talk about some of your uses in this article and what those kind of methods um, have offered your work? It's it's deep. In the in the background of this piece, um, actually, before this essay came became what it was, I had given a different paper that was focused on um, on trying to map squatter populations in Missouri, and it was extremely technical GIS work, trying to basically reinterpret the census at a more granular level um, than has been possible before to try and understand where um, squatter populations were going in relation to um, Indian treaties. And it was super technical. <laughs> it was like an incredibly technical paper going through all the steps in GIS that you would have to go to in order to apply this sort of modeling technique called suitability modeling, which comes from ecology uh, to census populations. And I gave this in a history seminar, like the like the one we're doing today. Yeah. And on one level, it was like a complete bomb because no, no, it, it, I the way that I had pitched it, no one was prepared to critique the method, and I was talking all about the method. Uh, but what made it great in the end was because they didn't want to talk about the method. The questions that I got were, so what's the political significance of all this? Yeah. And the answer was. No Boone's Lick land rush, no Missouri compromise. Yeah. And then that became the paper I wrote, answering the political question. And yeah. all of the GIS stuff um, sort of disappeared out of it. I used the GIS, um, um, the GIS methods to 
understand on a to quantify the land rush in a way that hadn't been before and to place it in in space and to understand it in relationship to um to indian land sessions and indian land taking uh and the sort of uh, the vestige of that is one sort of map that remains in this yeah. paper of land patents in the uh, in territorial Missouri, showing like the it's something like two thirds of the land patented in territorial Missouri um, between eighteen fifteen and eighteen twenty was in the Boone's Lick area. Um, so it became this sort of this sort of vestige, but it's not it's not forward in a way. And there's another there's one other place in this paper where where I do use. Um, GIS to look at sort of census material um, in a very traditional way. I mean, I'm looking at the sort of to to understand nationally the the speed at which counties um, were growing um, in the 1820 census. And one of the more significant findings from this paper, and one of the um, uh, one of the results that helps you understand how important this land rush is. Um, is that by looking just not within Missouri itself, but by looking across nationally, you know, there's 761 counties in the United States in the 1820 census, so looking across nationally and also across time, um, you can see that this Boonslick land rush is highly atypical. Yeah. And that is the opposite of how it gets read from post-war of 1812 anecdotes about the rush, which sort of, sort of understands it in terms of, well, we know antebellum United States was growing like gangbusters um, from 1800 to 1860. It's incredibly high national growth rates. So why wouldn't we see high growth rates um, in this place? But no one's actually looked at what the rates were. And when you look, it's, a, it's not, you know, it, it's, lar it's large and atypical, not large and typical, um, which helps you put it in context as something um, that needs to be explained. Yeah. So talking a bit more broadly, could you uh, say briefly how this article and this work uh, fits into maybe an ongoing project or your research more generally? Uh, yeah, so this, uh, this article is, it comes out of a chapter of my dissertation which is on the administration of the Indian Treaty Line and the Trans-Mississippi West in the antebellum period. The study is a is really a biography of a regional institution called the St. Louis Superintendency that was um, responsible for managing the Indian Treaty Line, and it's sort of a obscure institution. But I'm arguing that uh, it had its hands in a lot of different very important events uh, in the region, mm -hmm. and so I look at uh, I look at its sort of biography. It it existed from around 1804 to the late 1850s, um, and I study its institutional history as a uh, through a through a series of very well known events. The Missouri Compromise is one of them. Others are. Um, the Lewis and Clark expedition. There's going to be a chapter on the War of 1812, on Indian removal, um, the Black Hawk War, the Overland Trail, um, the Kansas, uh, Bleeding Kansas, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. All of these events happened uh, within its jurisdiction, and they all have sort of deep, um, independent historiographies. And I show that they were all happening um, 
within the St. Louis superintendency uh, and that those connections aren't incidental, that the St. Louis superintendency, which is not very well known, um, was ha- was playing a role in the, in the way that all of these sort of uh, textbook events played out. Um, so the cumulative effect is to... Um, not just sort of show these surprising connections, but show that it's surprising that we haven't seen these connections before because they're they're everywhere, not because that the that there was just sort of a a lucky sort of find. It's because the management of the Indian Treaty Line in the nineteenth century um, was such a big part of what the federal government was doing, what it was pouring resource, resources um, and uh, and manpower into. Uh, it's really not surprising that we would find these connections. The surprising thing is that we just haven't, you know, sort of drawn them out yet. Um, well, fantastic. So a couple more general questions just to finish off there. Are there any books or articles that you've read in the last 12 months that have got you excited either about your own work or the state of the field? Yeah, I mean, one of the books that I love that I've read in the last year is uh, Andreas Resendez's um, The Other Slavery. Um, I've assigned it for the MPhil course that, I, that I'm teaching here now. I, it's just, a, it's about um, Indian slavery in mostly northern New Spain. Um, and then the, uh, and then the Americas uh, in the southwest. And it's epic in... It's sort of scope going from uh, the Colombian encounter all the way up to the Civil War and uh, and Indian slavery among the Mormons. And on the one hand, it's sort of synthesizing this really important emerging literature on Indian slavery, but also bringing in all of this uh, new research that helps you understand its um, its quantitative dimensions and its uh, and the way that it forces us to, to rethink a number of uh, really, um, really important events like the Pueblo Revolt and the, uh, the depopulation uh, in the Caribbean in the, in the 16th century. Um, yeah, it's a stunning, uh, it's a stunning, uh, it's a stunning book, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to give it a read. Um, what's the most interesting place you've been for research? Oh, I've been to a lot of interesting yeah. places. I mean... Uh, I've done research as an Americanist. It's unusual that I've done research in a German castle. Mm-hmm. I've done research uh, in some private papers in a guy's living room. I've been to places like the uh, American Antiquarian Society, the American Philosophical Society, um, local reading rooms. Um, but really, the the places are less exciting than the stuff sure, that you yeah. that you find. Um, and the most interesting thing I've ever found is on a microfilm reader, and I could have found that anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of what made it so so great was that it was sort of a document that was hidden in plain sight that people had been sort of looking for and had been declared lost in the in the nineteen fifties, um, but it had just been misfiled. Um, and it was like a un, it was like an unsigned map, an unsigned, undated map, um, and it got misfiled with the wrong letter, uh, and sort of figuring out based on its content where it actually belonged, and having it be, you know, there were Indian treaty lines on the on the on the map, which is what made it very interesting to me. That's why I was attracted to it in the first place. But yeah. to be able to sort of, uh, you know, correct the record in some small yeah. way is uh, is pretty exciting. And to yeah. find it on microfilm of all things, like yeah. that's not something you associate with this kind of big archival discoveries. Yeah, yeah. So, what's your favourite album ever? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the truth is, I um, I don't listen to a lot of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the last concert I was I was at was a Foster the People sure, concert. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a uh, I'm gonna do a, a cheat on this one and say my favorite album is an album of images mm-hmm. produced by uh, Carl Bodmer, who was a mm-hmm. Swiss oh, yeah. artist who went to the plains in the uh, in the 1830s, and yeah. he was not particularly proud of the work. He went back to um, he eventually went back to France and was part of the Barbizon School, um, and he did not think particularly highly of his uh, sojourn in America. Sort of two years making images of the of the plains mm-hmm. of uh, plains. Um, Indians and landscapes, uh, but his work has sort of subsequently become uh, the stuff of dust jackets yeah. and uh, PowerPoint slides for lectures, and it sort of is. Uh, uh, it was responsible in part for sort of producing the the image that people carry in their heads of what the plains were in the nineteenth century. Great, that's a very creative answer as well. And so I've got one last question that I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't ask. What's it? What has it been like uh, getting into American history with the name Robert Lee? Ah, uh, yeah, it's a uh, the perpetual question. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say I'm a mas- I'm a masochist because uh, <laughs> I am I'm named Robert E. Lee. Um, I study the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, but I'm a New Yorker, so I'm from the, from the North, and I and I study the West, mm-hmm. um, so it all doesn't doesn't quite fit. Um, I have steered clear of, uh, of Civil War material for sort of the obvious reasons, yeah. but you know, what am I going to do? It's <laughs> it, it's it's my, it's my name, so uh, I'm I guess technically I'm not stuck with it, but I've grown accustomed so to it enough where I, where I'm not gonna uh, not gonna change it anytime mm-hmm. soon. Well, Robert E. Lee, on that note, <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you. We're looking forward to the seminar later. And yeah, that bigger book, that bigger project you're talking about sounds like it's going to be a bit of a game changer. So yeah, looking forward to reading it. Yeah, thanks so much, Lewis. Thanks a lot.